We're going to cover the whole chapter, maybe. We'll just see how things go. So chapter 12, let me read it, the book of Acts. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know uh, that uh, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, he came to the uh, iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along the street. And immediately the angel left him, and Peter came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people uh, and all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, or opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's uh, chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat among the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed uh, their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. 
Now, last week you studied the martyrdom of James, uh, the brother of John. And one of the things we should note from this is that the pers- persecution is intensifying. Should not, uh, I'm sure that a lot of what's going on here really surprised the apostles. Probably more than what they expected. But it's not as if Jesus hadn't warned them. Before he died, he said this to them. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus, as always, was right on. And as we move through the book of Acts, you're going to see that this persecution expands and this persecution becomes more and more severe. First of all, I want to just make clear who the Herod is. It's the same Herod that, uh, that had James, the brother of John, killed with a sword as we studied last week. But there are a number of Herods mentioned in the Bible. This is Herod. Uh, he's the fourth of the Herods. His, name, his official title was Herod Agrippa I of Judea. He ruled in Judea from 41 to 44 A.D. And here we have his gruesome death described in the book of Acts. Killing James, the brother of John, was not enough. He proceeded to arrest Peter and to put him in prison. Now just remember, this was uh, Passover, and, and probably the reason that Herod put Peter in prison instead of having him executed because executions were not allowed during that time. So probably he's just putting him in prison till the Passover celebration is over with the intent of having him executed then. This is a very, very remarkable passage. We also have the benefit of having extra biblical sources sometimes that add information that help us understand circumstances perhaps better than we would just leaning upon Scripture. Clement writes this. He was one of the early church historians. When this James was brought to the tribunal seat, he uh, that brought him and was the cause of his trouble seeing him to be condemned and that he should suffer death was in short, uh, short sort moved within heart and conscience that as he went to the execution... He confessed himself also of his own accord to be a Christian. You understand what's going on here? It's time for the execution of James, the brother of John, the man who was escorting him to the chopping block. 
was converted to Christianity because of the witness of Peter at the very end of his life, so much so that as history records it, he was beheaded also. Cool story, right? You said, remember, that's a story. I hope it's really, really true. It may not be true. But let me just challenge you with this. There's sometimes there are other extra-biblical things, writings, that can help us in our understanding and help us in our appreciation of particular circumstances. And he's one of the ones who's recorded in Fox's Book of the Martyrs. I mean, we can't say definitively that that actually took place, but what a remarkable story if it's true. Can you imagine? Well, Herod saw that it pleased the Jews... So he then proceeded to arrest Peter also, putting him in prison, intending probably after Passover to bring him out to the people and have him executed as well. Peter would be executed for his faith eventually in Rome. Roughly 30 years later, after he had roamed all over the place and preached Jesus all over the place, set down his roots, it seems, more firmly in Rome, near the end of his life. The very same night that he was arrested, when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, two Roman soldiers, each one of them chained to one or the other of his legs. There was also a guard outside the door of the cell. There was also a guard at the, at the gate of the prison. Romans were serious about preventing people from escaping capture. In other words, they did just about everything humanly possible to prevent Peter escaping. Paul, some years later, was in prison, was in prison, home prison, under house arrest, basically, in Rome. But he saw it as an opportunity for evangelism. Prison. There's a sense in which the same thing was true with James. God brings all kinds of things into our lives to give us opportunities for evangelism as well. 
On this occasion, Peter's uh, captivity was very brief. The first time he was arrested in the name of Christ, it won't be the last time. We're told that the church was praying for him. Now what do you think they were praying for? I mean, what would you do if one of your close brothers or sisters in Christ suddenly got thrown in prison? What prayer do you think you would be praying? <laughs> Probably that Peter would be delivered, right? And lo and behold, he is miraculously an angel appears removes his chains opens the door and takes him out of the prison unbeknownst to any of those Roman soldiers right under their nose What do you think that, uh, again, the, the, the church people were praying for, for Peter? Probably a host of things, but I would imagine the thing foremost on their mind was this imprisonment. That God would release him. But one of the things that we should get from this particular passage is this is even though the people were praying that that when Peter actually was released and he first came to them they didn't immediately receive him because it couldn't be Peter because <laughs> Peter's in jail <laughs> now isn't that amazing people praying in the prayer the exact prayer they're praying is fulfilled and they don't even see it <laughs> don't we have a great God don't we have a wonderful Father that speaks to us in ways sometimes? And can't we sometimes just be just as pig-headed and whatever is possible? I mean, how often does God answer prayers and bless people in ways and we don't really take much notice of it sometimes? And remember this, that sometimes God does say no. As a matter of fact, the Father we know said no to the Son. When he prayed in Gethsemane. Father, if it be your will, take this from me. Three times he prayed it. And three times basically the Father said no. But it is amazing that, you know, when Peter appears at the gate and this, this servant girl comes and uh, she figures it's Peter from his voice. But she's so excited about it, she doesn't even unlock the gate and let him in. She just leaves him standing outside. Runs and tells all these people and you can imagine that they all are thinking, you have lost your little mind, girl. to encourage us to be faithful in our prayers 
understanding that sometimes God says no, and sometimes he says not yet. But there are times when he says yes. And this was one of those times. Well, do you think that when Jesus was arrested that the apostles and the other believers were praying fervently for before the Father? Don't you think they probably were praying and hoping that Jesus would be released? In that particular case, the Father said, no, and he already told the son no. So we need to understand something. That sometimes God says yes, and sometimes he says no, but it's okay. Because ultimately, all of it is being worked out according to his perfect will and purpose, which we don't know what that is always going to be. And let me tell you something, if you haven't been surprised by God at times, I mean unbelievably surprised, amazed by God at what he's done, then I don't think you know him. Because he does, he, he, he does unbelievable, miraculous things. I mean, how many people are in your life that are or people that you've prayed for their salvation for a long time, and some of you have actually seen those people in time come to faith in Christ. Right now, releasing Peter serves God's purpose the best. There will come a time when Peter's death will serve God's best. Peter would suffer crucifixion in Rome around 64 AD during Nero's persecution. Just remember this, Jesus said to Peter shortly before Jesus was crucified, when you are old, you will, uh, they, you will be stretched out or you, they will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. To the place of execution, obviously. And we know from history that Peter was crucified in Rome. Eventually. Church was praying for Peter, but it stays to say that Peter was the last person they expected to knock at the gate.
According to their thinking, Peter was either dead already or he soon would be. There's probably a sense in which as they're gathered together, one of the things going on, they're probably in a sense grieving for Peter. Because they see a situation as absolutely hopeless. And now Peter's at the door knocking. It was almost in a sense as if Peter had been resurrected from the dead. In the meantime, Herod is notified of Peter's escape, and he orders that Peter's guard be put to death, which was the normal thing. That was one of the reasons why Roman soldiers virtually never lost prisoners. Because if they did, it cost them their life. And then there's Herod. We have the end of Herod described here in this passage. Suddenly dies. From history, we have a more detailed recounting of the death of Herod by Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history. He writes, this Herod was overtaken by God because of his plot against the apostles, struck down by an angel, eaten of worms, and died. The Jewish historian Josephus gives a much more fuller description of the death of Herod Agrippa. When Agrippa had reigned three years over Judea, he came to Caesarea. And there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. On the second day, he put a, on a garment holy of silver. In other words, this garment was made or covered with silver metal, shiny silver metal. And he came into the theater early in the morning, at which uh, time the, the, the silver of his garment be, be, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him and presently his flatterers cried out that he was a god. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. And as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl and immediately understood that the bird was a messenger of ill tidings and fell into a deep, uh, deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words, you just now said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away to death, 
When he said this, his pain became violent. And when he had been quite worn out by pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. And I would add these words. Only to enter into an eternity of torment. That would make what he's been through at that point nothing. The church has been persecuted severely in many places for the last 2,000 years. Countless brothers and sisters of ours have been crucified, beheaded, fed to wild beasts, etc., etc., etc. The blood of the martyrs is indeed the what? What is the word? The of the church. Can't remember. The seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's hard for you and I to really honestly to relate to this sort of thing, isn't it? You're not sure that some of you have suffered to some degree because of your faith. Maybe family members have disowned you. Maybe, maybe neighbors or people that you used to be close to don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. You know, that sort of thing. But there is a history of believers behind us that suffered unbelievably in physical ways who refused to give up their Lord Jesus Christ even under the most difficult circumstances. Herod anticipated his death as being a release from the torment he was enduring. According to the Bible, it was not. And indeed, what he endured up to that point was really not a lot compared. When we read passages like this, it really should stir things up within us. And one of those is this, is, is an agree and appreciation that I haven't had to endure this sort of thing. You know, every now and then someone comes along and it looks, it looks almost like they're looking for this. So they want so badly to die for Jesus that they go to great lengths to make it happen. But there's a sense in which all of us are called constantly and continually to die for Christ. To die to the world, to die to the things of the world. 
to die sometimes to things we give great priority that we should not give any priority to at all. We understand that there is a wind blowing across our land that would love to take away the freedoms that we have. Now, I'm going to tell you that the United States is a perfect nation. It's not. We've made our errors. We've done some really bad things. But one of the things that has always been enjoyed in this country is our right to practice our religion completely unhindered. And we would have to be blind in death to not see and hear the fact that there are people there. There are people in our land today that would love, would love nothing more than to take away your freedom to sit here this morning. We just had an election. I hope everyone in this room voted. If you didn't, shame on you. Because you need to understand something. That is a right that God has afforded you, not the U.S. Constitution. We need to participate, especially if we're going to complain. If we don't vote and we complain, we have got no ground for complaining. But it would be crazy not to understand, especially the things coming out of this election, just how divided down the, almost right down the middle that this nation is today. There's a shifting of power going on. And you and I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Things could change. But with that in mind, don't you think that we probably ought to be make, make the most of the time that we've got? Now, we understand this, that even if it became illegal for us to evangelize, we would do it anyway. Do you understand that most of the places where Paul and Peter and these other disciples went, where it was against the law very often for them to do what they did? But God called them to do it, and they did it. They were faithful. God has been faithful to us, and he expects us to be faithful to him. And that's not too much for him to ask. Let me tell you something. It would be very easy, given the circumstances that we're in, to just draw everything in close and going to our little hiding place and just sit there waiting for Jesus. But we know that's not what he wants us to do. We are to be about our Father's business and everything. Every day, all the time. 
Sometimes you're going to be given opportunities to share your faith. God will lay them before you like an open book. What are you going to do? Sometimes you actually have to make opportunities. To go, to talk, to strike up a conversation with someone that you might just walk right by otherwise. I'd love to be able to tell you that I have evangelized every person that God ever gave me the opportunity to evangelize. That's not true. That's not any close to the truth. But one of the things Lori and I do is we walk, do a little running. I haven't done much of either one of them lately. You know that. Around our neighborhood. And every now and then I'll come across one of our neighbors I hadn't seen for a while or or whatever, but, but let me tell you guys, you know, if you don't have relationships with anybody with, outside this room, why do you think you would ever have an opportunity to evangelize people? Now, you need to be close, don't get me wrong. I love this church. I love the family environment that we have here. We really do love each other, and we lean upon each other, and we depend upon each other, and that's important. But we can't become ingrown where this becomes our whole world. Step out on a limb. And just let me say this. The first conversation you have with people doesn't necessarily mean that you need to tell them about Jesus. The first conversations very often lead to second conversations and third conversations. And so on and so on. I would imagine you get, we, you get to heaven, there are going to be people there that are going to say, you know what, you had everything to do with me coming to faith in Christ, and, and you probably aren't even going to be aware of what you did. What, how are you going to feel if somebody walks up to you in heaven and they say, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? I had to wait for so-and-so to do it. Did you not care enough about me to do such a little thing? We have a culture out there that wants to convince us that it's all about me. This says otherwise. over and over and over again.